All right, let's begin with a prayer. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you, as we do each time we come together, to be with us. Uh, Speak to us in this time as we consider the bodies that you have given us. Make my words your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this is the second week of our series on the biblical worldview. This morning we'll be talking about sexuality. All the preliminary remarks that I made last week still hold true. We're doing this because the world is preaching its message about these things loudly, and it's incumbent upon me as your pastor to teach you God's good news, God's good plan for sexuality, even if I feel inexpert in my qualifications to do so. Uh, We're doing this, teaching you God's plan So that when the world comes knocking at your door, or when your kid asks you a question about something they heard in school, or when you're asked to hang a flag outside your business or called a name for your convictions, you'll have something to fall back on, something on which to rely, some good news to proclaim. I heard someone recently say that our position, that is the biblical position on sex, and sexuality is the most unpopular thing we could be saying during our current cultural moment. And yet Jesus Jesus warned us that it would be so. If the world hates you, Jesus told his followers in John 15, remember that they hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world Hates you. Now, this is not to say that our goal is to be hated, but simply to say that if we are to remain faithful to the truth, hatred in the eyes of the world seems a likely result. So, like last week, we have blank question cards there and a place in which to put them. Uh, Rather than try to just answer a few questions off the cuff at the end of our time this morning, I'm going to collect questions and devote an entire session at the end of this class to answering them. Uh, That way I'll have the opportunity to give those questions the thought and research that they'll no doubt deserve. Uh, We also have more copies of the reading list there. Uh, As I said, there are many more thinkers and writers, more thoughtful, who are studied more deeply, who are more effective communicators about these issues than I am. Please take advantage of the work of these people, just as I have in preparing what I'm sharing with you in these classes. So, in order to put us in a proper, that is, biblical frame of mind, let's begin our time with a word of Scripture. This is a reading from Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I think actually that the place we have to begin our conversation about sex is by talking about why we have to have a conversation about sex. Evangelical Christians are often accused of being obsessed with sex. We're the ones complaining about things that everyone else seems to take completely in stride nowadays. Everyone, everything from what passes for the young ladies clothing section at Target to strip-teasing Super Bowl halftime shows to the proliferation of internet pornography to the existence of websites like Ashley Madison, which is a website that exists specifically to facilitate extramarital affairs. Why do we raise such a hue and cry? Why are we obsessed with sex? Well, three reasons, I think. First, the world is obsessed with sex. After all, the world decides what clothing to sell at Target, to put on strip-teasing halftime shows, It creates and endorses internet pornography and supports and can sustain AshleyMadison.com. All that stuff sells. Every ad you see on TV is sexualized. Every product is sold with sexual ideas. There's a reason that every superhero suit is form-fitting. The tipping point for me was when the minions in one of, one of the, 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 a preview I saw for one of those Despicable Me films made for small children, one of the minions made an illicit visual joke about another minion's breast. So illicit sex or sex period is everywhere. The world is obsessed with sex. That's one reason that why we as Christians talk about it. Second, sex is an important topic for us because God puts sex at the very center of the created order. John Paul II, a former pope of the Roman Catholic Church, found that it was worth spending much of his ministry, both before and after his pontificate, developing, writing, and presenting a theology of the body, which is a work that I'll be referring to throughout this morning's presentation. We are created, as we read in Genesis 1, male and female in the image of God. That's important. Our individual sex is important, and as we'll see, the way we express ourselves sexually is important. Sex lies at the center of what it means to be an image bearer of God. Third and finally, despite all the eye-rolling rhetoric uh, directed at us from outside the church, we in the church talk about sex because the Bible teaches that sexual sin is worth focusing on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul tells us to flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits, he says, is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Even though any sin is enough to separate you from the holiness of God outside of Christ's intervention, and no sin is enough to invalidate the finished saving work of Jesus Christ, there seems to be something about sexual sin that Paul, and therefore God, speaking through Paul, feels the need to warn us about in particular. Flee sexual immorality. That's the Bible's word on the matter. So that's why... 
we feel compelled to talk about sex. Now let's turn to our attention to what we're going to actually say about it. As we begin, I want to share an unbiblical worldview with you, one that you'll find, if you look closely enough, has a lot of parallels with today's sort of post-Christian world. This worldview, some of you will have heard of it, is called Gnosticism. Now there are a lot of facets to Gnosticism. It's a big, complicated thing that I'm not going to get into at all. It comes from the Greek word for knowledge, Gnosis, and it included the belief that the way to escape this carnal realm was through a special secret knowledge. That's how it got its name. I don't have the time and certainly don't have the expertise to give you a full overview of Gnosticism this morning, but there is one aspect of it that is pertinent to our discussion here, and that is the strict separation that the Gnostics saw between the tangible earthly and physical realm in which we live, and the pure, mystical, and spiritual realm in which God lives, and to which we are trying to get. So to put it in simple terms, Gnostics saw the physical as dirty and the spiritual as clean. That's why, for instance, something like the incarnation, the belief that God would come to earth as a man, was simply impossible for Gnostics to believe, to participate in something as earthly as childbirth and puberty and blood and guts and snot. None of that was possibly believable for the Gnostic. And one of the results of adherence to this Gnostic worldview was that the body, because of its physicalness, the body became unimportant. It was, by definition, unclean, so it didn't matter what you did with it. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever. Your body was unimportant, yours to play with in whatever way you saw fit. What was important for the Gnostic was the spirit, your spirit. And the religious pursuit was to participate more and more in the life of the spirit and less and less in the life of the body. So, for instance, the phrase, it's just sex, makes sense in a Gnostic worldview. But it's just sex is not a Christian teaching. For Christians, the body is actually a good thing, not a bad thing. Our bodies are an intentional part of God's creation. He formed us like this on purpose. Gnostics looked forward to a time where they would be pure spirits, ridding themselves of their bodies altogether. Now, the Bible teaches a resurrection, but it is clearly a resurrection of the body. Indeed, it's right there in the Apostles' Creed, the earliest creed of the Christian church. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So Christians do not seek to escape from our bodies as part of the resurrection, Our bodies are part of the resurrection. Our culture, then, despite its seeming obsession with sex and those aspects of the body, is actually trending in a more Gnostic direction, subconsciously denigrating the body by treating it as something to which and with which people can do whatever they want, whatever feels good at the moment. It doesn't matter. It's just your body. The problem, 
Christopher West writes in his great treatment of John Paul II's Theology of the Body, which is embarrassingly for readers like me called Theology of the Body for Beginners. (laughs) West says, the problem with our sex-saturated culture is not that it overvalues the body and sex. The problem is that it has failed to see just how valuable the body and sex really are. The fact that God created us as embodied creatures, right? He didn't create Adam and then look for a place to put him. He created a body and breathed life into it. The fact that God created us as embodied creatures, not just ethereal spirits, means that our bodies carry great importance. So I want to talk for a second about our bodies and sex and what those things mean. Because God, unlike us, is pure spirit. He is unseen outside of his manifestation on earth in Christ and a few specially controlled instances in the Bible. Christianity, therefore, can be thought of as a religion of God's self-disclosure. God wants to reveal himself to us. And as we've said, the main way that he has done that is in Christ. But he's done it in other ways, too. The Bible talks about several Many of us will have experienced a sense of awe and wonder at God's creation, a beautiful sunrise, the power of the ocean. Scripture says that things like this speak to God's glory. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's Psalm 19, verse 1. This kind of thing is a certain kind of revelation, allowing us to see a reflection of God. But the crown of creation, suggests West and John Paul II, the thing that more than anything else in God's creation, other than Christ himself, that speaks of divine beauty, is a man and a woman, created in the image of God, called to fruitful communion. Genesis chapter 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the first directive of God to man and woman, immediately after they are created, is not simply a commandment to make more people. It's actually a call to love in the image of God, and therefore to fulfill the very meaning of humanity's being and existence. To understand this, we have to understand two overarching truths, two pieces of good news about human sex and sexuality as designed by God. Here's the first one. God himself is a communion of love. God himself is a communion of love. Remember that we worship a triune God, Three and one. He is within the Godhead an eternal sharing of loving relationship, the sincere giving of self to another. This is all happening within God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Real love, sincere, sacrificial, giving love exchanged between the persons of the Trinity. This is at least a way to describe what we mean when we say that God is love. Certainly, he does love but actual and active loving is happening within God. It is his nature. He is love. 
The second overarching piece of good news about human sex and sexuality as designed by God is that we, you and I, are actually destined to share in that communion, in that exchange of love. Follow me now and see how the created order, man and woman, coming together in marital union and being fruitful and multiplying, actually points us directly to the character and attributes of God. So in creation, God imprinted right in our sexuality a calling to participate in a version of what's going on in the Trinity, that eternal and perfect loving relationship, that forever and ever exchange of sacrificial love. God created us, male and female, so that we could participate in and point to his love by becoming a sincere gift one to another. And it goes even one step further. That creation-level relationship, a man and a woman in sacrificial and sexual marital love, establishes what West calls a communion of persons, not only between the sexes, but also in the normal course of events, and of course there are exceptions, but in the normal course of events, a third who proceeds from them both. That is a child. Be fruitful and multiply. And so we see that the sexual love between a man and a woman within the created order family, husband, wife, child, actually becomes an earthly image of the inner life of the Trinity. This is an amazing picture that we get to participate in. There's also a foreshadowing in the created order of man and woman that points to the union and communion between Christ and his church. In Ephesians chapter 5, after instructing the church about how husbands and wives are to relate to one another, St. Paul says this, No one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then he quotes Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Before adding, this mystery is profound. And I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. God created us male and female right from the beginning in order that we would live in a kind of holy communion, that communion of persons to which West referred, a communion that foreshadows the ultimate holy communion of Christ and his church. Scripture makes this idea explicit, referring to the church as the bride of Christ. You can also see it by looking at it in reverse, too. The gift of Jesus' body and blood, broken and shed for sinners who make up this church that we participate in in the Eucharist, that Holy Communion illuminates and defines the meaning of the communion between man and woman. So taking all this into account, it becomes clear why God created man, woman, intimacy, marriage, and sex the way he did, in order to image and proclaim the eternal sacrificial love that exists in the Trinity and how no other sexualized relationship to men, to women, to unmarried people, a married person with someone who is not their spouse, any other imaginable combination up to and including sinful behavior within a heterosexual marriage, it becomes clear why no other sexualized relationship could ever appropriately point to the love that defines God, the God 
of love, the God is love, that exists because of the never-ending and perfect giving of self within the Godhead. Now, you should note here that it's not that any particular other arrangement is especially sinful. It's just that only one arrangement is faithful to that created order and can therefore point to the truth about God, man and woman, husband and wife. Everything else is a result of that created order being broken. As we talked about last week, if we believe that we have an almighty God who speaks into the world and who laid out a godly order of creation, then nothing other than his order will do. Let's take a break for a second from focusing on the marital relationship and its imaging of the love of God for a second and talk about celibacy. Because I don't want to overlook celibacy, even though the Bible talks at much more length about sexuality and marriage because of the weight of the imagery behind it, I want to be sure to talk about celibacy because it's one of the two sexual states that are outlined by God as good, right? Sexual fidelity within lifelong heterosexual marriage on the one hand and celibacy on the other. Now, it's worth noting here that the phrase sexual minorities is an inappropriate one, at least in the church. The same sexual standard applies to everyone. We are all equally under this law, fidelity in marriage, chastity, and singleness. Now, it's true that, as we've said, the human person is created male and female to be a participant in the self-giving love of God's Trinitarian interrelationships. John Paul says that the body, for this reason, has a spousal meaning. That's John Paul's phrase, a spousal meaning. In other words, we are created to be a gift to another. And this is actually, although perhaps counterintuitively, true both in marriage and in celibacy. In marriage, you are primarily designed to be a gift to your spouse. In celibacy, you are primarily designed to be a gift to the church. Now this means that marriage and celibacy are actually much more closely related than we might think at first glance. After all, admittedly, they seem pretty different. But both vocations, both vocations, and I'm including both a calling to permanent lifelong celibacy and the calling to just a chaste period of celibacy before marriage, both of these states give a fully realized answer to the question about the meaning of sexuality, an answer that the world has gotten completely backward and wrong. For the world, the meaning of sexuality is self-gratification. This is one reason for the advocacy of cohabitation and sexual experimentation before marriage. It's something that even some in the church are beginning to fall into. After all, if you don't take some test drives, how are you to know if this is the right car for you? If you don't have sex before marriage, how can you possibly know if this potential partner will be satisfying to you? But in God's sexual economy, and again, this holds true both for the married and the celibate, the meaning of sexuality is actually self-donation, self-giving in the image of God. This is why our world thinks that both people who are committed to lifelong marriage, that is staying off Ashley Madison, and people who are called to a vocational singleness and chastity, those who are saving themselves for marriage, This is why our world thinks that those people, you know, people like us, are crazy. 
Remember, our culture's problem isn't that it's thinking of sex and the body too highly, but that it's actually devaluing them. And so it makes all the sense in the world that our culture turns around and devalues both lifelong marital fidelity and celibacy, because both, in the world's eyes, make no sense. If the point of our sexuality is a calling to give ourselves away in a trinity-mirroring, mirroring, life-giving love, you can see how a person who is called to celibacy or committed to celibacy, again, either vocationally or during the period before marriage, the person committed to celibacy is not rejecting that call. The celibate person just lives it out in a different way. Every man, because of the spousal meaning of his body, is called in some sense to be a husband and a father. And this may mean in a traditional family, or it may mean in celibacy, a certain kind of service to the church, mentoring, protecting, leading. The same is true for women. Because of the spousal meaning of their bodies, every woman is called to be, in some sense, a wife and mother. Again, this is ordinarily expressed in a family, but it can also be a vocation of lived-out service to the church, caring, nurturing, supporting. So that's how things are supposed to be. What went wrong? It was, of course, the serpent whispering in Eve's ear and then Adam and Eve believing the lie. Did God really say? Is this really the best way? Do you really think that God has your best interests at heart? Shouldn't you humans really be the ones who decide right from wrong and what to do with these bodies you've been given? I mean, if what I've said so far is true, that the body, sex, and sexuality are meant to proclaim and point to our union with God, Christ and the church, it makes all the sense in the world for the enemy in order to break apart that union to attack right at that spot, right at your body, your sex, your sexuality. Satan is no fool. He knows that everything we've been talking about this morning is the truth, The body and sex are meant, as we've said, to proclaim and point to a divine mystery. And Satan desperately wants that mystery, that proclamation, stifled. Therefore, from his perspective, men and women must be prevented from recognizing the mystery of God in their bodies. And so it is that we are tempted. Your body is yours. Do with it whatever you like. Did God really say? And of course, this temptation plays itself out most uncontrollably inside our heads. It's no accident that Jesus teaches that looking at a woman with lust in your heart is the same as committing adultery with her. The sin is in breaking the connection to God. Once the divine mystery has been profaned and denied, our bodies, our sex and sexualities, have come to be considered our own, the form the sin takes, mental or physical, is actually less important than the fact that we have already put ourselves in the place of God, or tried to, like Adam and Eve, reaching up to be like God. And now because of sin, we are ashamed of our nakedness. We we talked last week about identity, a concept which re-enters our discussion at this point. There are some who accept the biblical teaching about sexual practice, that is, that the biblical call is either fidelity in marriage or chastity in singleness, 
but who define themselves by disordered sexual desires, imagining that if they just don't act on those desires, they have been faithful to God's call. However, Jesus' location of sin in the heart levels the field for all of us. All of our desires outside of God's created plan for identity, our bodies, our sex, our sexualities, even if they aren't acted on or indulged, a state that the church has traditionally called concupiscence, remain sin and must be confessed to God, mortified in the flesh and redeemed in Christ. Article 9 of our 39 Articles of Religion is very clear about this. Sin, the article says, deserves God's wrath and damnation. And this infection of nature doth remain, yea, in them that are regenerated, i.e. in Christians. And although the article continues, there is no condemnation for them that believe and are baptized, yet the apostle, referring to Paul, doth confess that concupiscence and lust hath of itself the nature of sin. So in other words, Christians still sin even if they don't act on or indulge their sinful desires. The sinful desires themselves are sinful. So the lie, the lie that Adam and Eve believed first and that each one of us is now prone to believe, the lie that we can be defined by our own use of our bodies is the underlying story, for instance, of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. She too had been deceived by this lie. She was looking for fulfillment outside of God's ordered plan for sex. She was engaging in sex acts with men who were not her husband. Both sides are certainly plenty sinful in this organization, but she couldn't find the fulfillment that she sought. She's brought before Jesus, and he refuses to condemn her. Notably, he doesn't say that her behavior is okay. In fact, he tells her to go and sin no more. But this... This go and sin no more is not so much a command as it is a promise, a gift. This woman, desperately searching for a love that continued to elude her, would not have heard this word of Jesus as a law, wondering, who is this man to tell me what I can and cannot do with my body? She has encountered now in Jesus the love she was truly looking for, her view of herself Her body, her sex has been reordered completely. She is transformed, renewed and affirmed in the deepest part of her being as a woman. Go and sin no more is another way of Jesus saying, go and be the woman God created you to be. Now that woman was brought to Jesus against her will. In a sense, that's true for all of us. St. Paul says in Romans that no one seeks after God, but we can do by God's power what that woman was forced to do by the mob. We can fall at Jesus' feet. We can throw ourselves at the mercy of the court. That's what sinners do. And counterintuitively and thankfully, that's actually how we grow in sexual purity. A professor I had in seminary once made the comment that the reason his marriage was still together was that he understood, that he knew that it could be ruined by him at any moment, that he could blow it like that. We were all shocked to hear that at the time, but I think now I understand what he meant by that. He meant that his marriage was still together because it was completely reliant on the grace and mercy of God 
shown to him in Jesus Christ, to image in him and in his wife that self-giving love of the Godhead that we've been talking about. On his own and in his own strength, he understood that such a thing was impossible. Now, growing in sexual purity certainly demands a human effort. And so we discipline ourselves and, when necessary, allow the church to discipline us. But it is a human effort carried along by a supernatural grace. Remember that the woman caught in adultery received Jesus' words to go and sin no more as a gift. Indeed, it was a new life, a new life in Christ given to her, the least deserving. And this is what we all rely on. And before we wrap up with a final illustration, I want to dip into the Christopher West, John Paul II, well, one more time, to illustrate the importance of falling at the feet of Christ as the only way our desire for sexual purity can actually see fruit. West suggests that there are three directions one can turn when the so-called lusts of the flesh flare up, when you find yourself tempted to live in your body or with your sexuality in a way that is outside God's plan. Those three paths are indulgence, repression, and redemption. Now, many of us only really consider two of those choices when such a desire rears its ugly head. We imagine that we can either indulge it, go ahead and act out sexually, or we can repress it, just ignore it, in the hopes that it will eventually fade away. Now, as Christians, those who have submitted ourselves to God, we know that indulgence is a sin. We know that that is not an option for us. We still, of course, do it sometimes, But more often, if we get the opportunity, our MO is to turn to repression. We try to turn our back on the desire, to stuff it down deep inside us, hoping that it might go away. But the devil is no fool. Repression, I think, is his workshop. It's there that our temptation, our repressed desires grow and grow until they eventually overpower us. Thankfully, like We saw in that story of the woman caught in adultery, there is another way. Rather than repressing lusts by pushing them into the subconscious or trying to ignore them or just sort of crossing our fingers and hoping they go away on their own, we must surrender our lusts to Christ and allow him to slay them and then to redeem us. In other words, we fall at Jesus' feet and repent again and again and believe the gospel. That's how we grow, a lifetime of acknowledged sin, repentance, absolution, and new life over and over again until that day when we are no longer merely images of that divine, mutually self-donating love, but active participants in it. Last week, we ended with a real-life example, that of Bruce Jenner's transgenderism, to illustrate what we'd said about identity. I want to do the same thing this morning, but I'm going to combine this week's topic, sexuality, with last week's topic, identity. Uh, I hope you've seen this morning how intertwined they are. Um, In January of 2021, the ACNA College of Bishops released a document called Sexuality and Identity, a Pastoral Statement from the College of Bishops. Now, the ACNA's position on sex and sexuality has been clear from its founding. Article 8 of the Jerusalem Declaration, the creed-like document which came out of the meeting which called for the creation of the ACNA, 
and a document to which members of Grace Anglican Church agree when they sign our membership covenant, the Jerusalem Declaration states the following. We acknowledge God's creation of humankind as male and female and the unchangeable standard of Christian marriage between one man and one woman as the proper place for sexual intimacy and the basis of the family. We repent of our failures to maintain this standard and call for a renewed commitment to lifelong fidelity in marriage and abstinence for those who are not married. So the bishops didn't release a new statement in 2021 out of a need to clarify that. What they did feel like they needed to address was how some Christians, Anglicans included, were, one, trying to uphold a biblical sexual ethic of chastity outside of lifelong heterosexual marriage, but two, referring to themselves in terms of sexual identity or orientation. In this particular case, a movement of so-called gay Christians. Now, you can read the statement for yourselves. I recommend that you do. It's on the reading list, a link to it. But if I was to summarize it, the main three things that it said were, one, we as bishops in the ACNA want to pastorally care for and really love Christians who are struggling with same-sex attraction. Two, we want to be clear that the shed blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to atone for any sin. And three, we advise against using language such as gay Christian because it can allow people to find at least part of, if not the main part of, their identity, not in Christ, but in a disordered desire. So instead, the bishops suggested that the church use language like Christians who experience same-sex attraction. Now, this acknowledges the desire that may be part of a sinner's life forever, but refuses to allow it to become anything remotely like a constitutive part of his or her identity in Christ. Now, you can read about the reaction all over the Anglican internet. Uh, It won't serve us to go into it here. Suffice to say that I support the bishop's statement, acknowledging as it does the two things we've talked about these last two weeks, that we as Christians are no one other than new creations in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. And though our bodies, our sex, and our sexuality are profoundly powerful forces in our lives, They have been made by God for a purpose, a specific purpose, to image, to point to the love that he exhibits within himself and the love that he has shown to us in Christ. No adjectival modifier for Christian is sufficient. Everything is left behind at the cross. Sex is powerful, but there's no such thing for a Christian as a sexual minority. We are instead called to put the spousal meanings of our bodies to work, either serving our spouse in fidelity and love, serving the church in chastity and love, or both. This is the vocation to which we have been called. This is the gift which Christ, by his finished work, has given us. So I'm going to pray now. I'm going to remind you as we are at 1145 that there are question cards and a place to Put them. I'll be collecting them. Please do feel free to ask any question. As always, you can also be in touch with me directly. I'd be happy to, to talk about anything that I've talked about with you, either in person or if you fill out a card, I'll try to address it the last week of the class. Let's pray. Dear God, remind us that it is in the giving of ourselves 
that we live into the plan you have for our bodies. Show us the way to be faithful. If we are called to be married, give us fidelity. If we are called to be single, give us chastity. Help us desire those things. Turn our hearts so that we love your law. Show us compassion when we fall. Help us to show compassion to others when they fall. Above all, help us to remember that the purity we strive for and that you call us to is only possible in you and by the grace you have shown us in Jesus Christ. Continue your redeeming work in our lives. We ask this in your Son, our Savior, Jesus' name. Amen.